Rock and roll is a game with many willing participants. From the outside, it's a no-brainer, an easy, fun vocation that reaps endless rewards. Upon a little closer inspection, though, one will find the game of rock and roll to be rigged from the get-go. It lures entrants by dazzling them with all the potential bounty to be had. The gold records, the beautiful people, the endless admirers, the bright marquees, the trinkets, the toys, etc., etc. But like a street hustler with a three-card Monty trick, once the bet's been placed, the con is put immediately into play, always turning the band into the scapegoat holding the bag at the end. And most will have little or no sympathy for them, chalking it up to their deserving comeuppance for daring to advance their station. And if a band is lucky enough to achieve a modicum of success, whether it be through some esteemed blog or through forceful major label duress, it is always fleeting. While we, as the audience, are privy to their glory, we never see the years of hard work that led to the band's moment in the spotlight, nor the anguish that overcomes them when the spotlight ultimately moves on to its next victim. We are complicit in the music industry's wanton need for the newest, the freshest, and the youngest. It's an industry resembling a factory conveyor belt, churning out product at a breakneck speed to appease some all-consuming beast with no time to actually step back and listen to its contents no matter how revered and respected they might be. Once the fame train has moved on, as quick as it came, most bands quietly fold. They get day jobs, they lick their wounds, or steal the time away until their stock rises again for a quick nostalgic cash grab, much like water rising in a toilet tank after one flushes it. Music industry insiders have whittled the average lifespan for a name band to seven years. That's not enough time to call it a career. For most, despite success, despite awards, despite how decorated a band can end up becoming, a lot of the time, being in a band ends up merely being a long, protracted hobby. And since the music industry relies on acts to have quick expiry dates, what honors are bestowed on bands who happen to last longer than the seven-year cutoff point? What accolades can be heaped on bands who have the tenacity, the doggedness, and the stubbornness to stay in the game? At what point do we start to recognize the real McCoys from the forgeries when, come hell or high water, limelight or not, these bands prove to anyone and everyone that they're in it for the long haul, to be given the chance to perform their music? Helix are a hard rock band from Kitchener, Ontario, Canada, and they've been around for over 40 years. In that time, they've managed to put out 13 studio albums, three live albums, two EPs, and released nearly 30 singles. They've toured the world, racked up gold records, platinum records, and most impressively, been able to outlast short-term fads and passing trends that ensnare and constrict most bands. Through it all, highs and lows, through success and tragedy, has been lead singer Brian Vollmer. He's been the constant in the world of Helix. He is Helix. And the chance to sit down with Brian was something I wasn't going to pass up once I was given a window. Still, this podcast took almost a year to have happen. We had discussed doing it while we were recording our last record, Fire Music. It was originally going to be me and Eric Ratz, our producer for Fire Music, sitting down with Brian. Eric knew, just as I did, 
that it would be a privilege to be able to sit down with the man and listen to what he had to say. For me, living in Toronto, it isn't easy to get to Brian. Brian lives in London, Ontario now, and his time away from the nucleus of the Canadian music industry that is Toronto has given him, over the years, almost mythic status. When he's spotted, whether he knows it or not, most in the know do a double-take and ask, holy shit, is that the guy from Helix? Well, when Brian Vollmer agrees to be on your podcast, he doesn't go to you. You go to him. This is earned respect. I won't move my smallest toe for most, but for Brian, I'll get in my car and do the two-and-a-half-hour drive to London myself. There are hundreds of stories lobbed over by bands that are supposed to be interesting, but their trough is as shallow as an inflatable swimming pool. I want to hear the real stories, the stories from a time before we tweeted about it, 60 seconds after it happened. And I want to hear stories about people that have been deified. And I want to hear it from the horse's mouth. I want to talk to Brian Vollmer. And that's what I did. I spent the morning into the early afternoon one day with Brian, as you are about to hear. What you don't get to hear was the personal tour he gave me of his house dubbed Planet Helix. Once the podcast mics were turned off, it was a guided tour through the history of this legendary band through photographs, mementos, keepsakes, souvenirs, and awards. I was a kid in a candy store, and I can't thank Brian enough for that. I also want to thank Blue Mic Microphones and Skull Candy Headphones for supporting the podcast. Thanks to Chino Loco's Restaurants for making fish burritos stuffed with chow mein noodles. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Um, thanks for leaving a review if you have as well. Brian Vollmer of Helix is this episode's guest on the official Danko Jones podcast, and it starts now. The Danko Jones podcast is the best around. They play the kid as Danko's crew will tell them for free. I'm sad glad I like to sometimes. Jimmy in from fucked up. Stop playing hang down, down. What do you see in my future? What are you reading them bones? She paused for a while, flashing alligator smile, and she told me, Danko I feel it's absolutely compulsory for you to listen to the Danko Jones podcast. Many times, Liz and I camped out in front of our Fisher 500 hi-fi receiver, hanging on Danko's every word. It's what we used for inspiration when we both starred in Under Milkwood. We even got Peter hooked by the end of the production. Peter O'Toole, that is. <laughs> I implore you to go now and listen to Danko expound on subject matter most of us don't even think twice about. Listen to him. Turn anything into podcast gold. It's simply fantastic. The Danko Jones podcast is simply superb. Splendidly fine. Wonderfully wild. Very divine. I'm at uh, Planet Helix. I made it out. I did the drive. This That's is good. a big day nice, for me. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me, Brian. It took me a few hours to get here. I've been wanting to do this for oh, 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 about a year now. Mm -hmm. We talked about coming up here with with uh, our producer of our last record eric ratz yes um while we were making our last record we're like you know what uh let's get let's go to brian's and let's just do this podcast and let's get 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 these stories out of them and and, and all this stuff so 
Um, uh, a, a lot of people know about Helix yes. from this one song that was a worldwide hit. That's right. A staple of rock music, which is uh, Rock You. That's right. And ironically, that wasn't the biggest hit of the band's career. It was Heavy Metal Love. Right. Which was on the album previous to... Which was on the Walking. first uh, EMI Capital record, uh, No Rush to the Wickeds. And it was a song we wrote about uh, Joan Jett. No way. Yeah. I didn't know it was about her. Yes. And did you have a, um, a run-in with her? or how, What's the story behind that? No, we just had her in my room. We wrote the lyrics of the song. We thought, well, if we had a heavy metal love. What would she look like? We thought we'd, she would look like Joan Jett, <laughs> dressed in leather, <laughs> swinging a guitar. That's funny because with the popularity of Rock You, um, did they re-release Heavy Metal Love? Because I remember seeing Heavy Metal Love after Rock You was out. Was it just because of the whole the the snowball of Rock You that they just no? It was because of the uh, fact that when we released Heavy Metal Love in the United States, that was our first single in the U.S. in 1983. Uh, it was the first year for MTV, and the uh, video for the song went to a heavy rotation. And uh, we were pulling into places, uh, well, for instance, we, we pulled into Washington and we'd never been there before in our career. And there was a lineup a block long for the band and I just went, wow. And it was, uh, the effect of TV was so incredible on our career at that time. And um, in Canada, they had released the Eddie Schwartz song, uh, Does a Fool Ever Learn, which didn't really do too much on radio. Um, when the second album uh, came out, uh, uh, Walking the Razor's Edge, I think that the uh, Canadian radio didn't want to be caught behind the eight ball, so they jumped on the song immediately. And in, and uh, when Rocky came out in the United States, uh, it, it started to become a hit, and then they fired everybody at Capital EMI. And by the time they got people back in the positions at the tower, they, they had lost the song. But in Canada... Because the song was a legitimate hit and had legs, uh, it took off and there was no looking back. It, it, it's, you know, now it's just part of, what would you call it? It's just been ingratiated into the whole classic rock lexicon with all the classic songs. People, mm -hmm. people know, but sometimes everybody, well, everybody knows the song because of the classic intro, the chorus. It's just so classic. Sometimes people don't, remember the name of the band and i've That's had true. to tell people like yeah i'm gonna go uh talk to brian volmer well the biggest Helix. comment we get when people come to the show is they go i didn't realize the band did that song and i didn't realize it did that song and yeah uh you, you know we've had a, quite a few hits over the years and we continue to put out records and um on one hand uh, uh the song is a bit of a curse because like you said uh, sometimes they know the song more than they know the band but we we do owe our career to the song and uh and uh, i get nothing but good feelings towards uh rock you and uh, bob halligan the guy that wrote it well take me back to when walking on the razor's <clears throat> edge was was taken off and rocky was like zooming up the charts how how was your life how did it did it was it an overnight thing what changed? Like, well, our career wasn't an overnight thing. We'd been together about, I think, eight years by the time that song actually came out. But uh, when the song came out, uh, it was almost an overnight thing. We actually um, recorded a beer commercial for Labatt's uh, based on the letters of the song. Instead of going, give me an R-O-C-K, it was give me a B-L-U-E. 
And uh, <laughs> by accident, the beer company actually put the commercial out before the album came out, and Capital uh, was ready to take them to court to sue to get a, get a uh, brakes put on that uh, commercial. And then uh, um, <clears throat> the bots pulled the commercial, and we had to do another one with Heavy Metal Love. Instead of uh, Heavy Metal Love, it was called La Bots Flew. Oh, that's blue. Something like that. But uh, I remember being down in uh, New York City at the uh, backstage at the Meadowlands. We had just played with Rush on the uh, Grace Under Pressure tour. And they came backstage. And I still have it on my Super 8 film somewhere down downstairs. But Barry Bergman was there, the manager. Bob Halligan wrote the song. And uh, my manager, Bill Sipe, and the band. And they told us the uh, album had gone gold in Canada. And... Somebody on the film jokingly says, yeah, in a couple of weeks we're going platinum. And everybody laughed. It was a big joke. And in a couple of weeks we did go platinum after that. Right. And um, in Canada we ended up uh, backing up Triumph on the uh, Power 7 tour or something like that. And Which I was remember big, that, their uh, big album. It, right? it, it was a big album for them, but it was, it was funny because we were holding our own against uh, Triumph at that time. So uh, the song definitely had an incredible effect. Uh, on our career and it was very quick i can't imagine a band at the time with helix with rock you riding that crest having helix open up for them i can't that <laughs> must be a nightmare for the open uh, for the headlining band we played with a lot of great acts back then we did a, a whole trade united states with white snake and quiet ride um and uh, then after that tour was over, I think ICM, who was our booking agent at that time, uh, farmed us out. And we did a couple tours with Heart. Uh, I know we played with Motorhead a couple tours. And um, uh, yeah, great I, times. I think it was when we were flying down to Miami to do the motorboat cruise last year. And we ran into you guys at the airport. And we just said, we dropped Motorhead's name, like we we're going to play mm -hmm. Motorhead. And then, bam, you you dropped some Lemmy stories immediately. Like, <laughs> uh, what were those? Uh, um, I can't remember them. I remember quite a few things about that tour. First off, we, we started off uh, touring the United States with actually Molly uh, Hatch and Blackfoot, and that tour fell apart after a couple of days. Wow. And ICM put us on the uh, Another Perfect Day tour with Motorhead. Right. And... Um, we were all pretty green from the perspective that we'd never really been in the United States. We weren't really like a, a hardcore band like a, a Motorhead. So we were more like a, a jukebox band that toured the bars in Canada. So we were a little bit shocked, to tell you the truth, because here's Motorhead, you know, and everybody's uh, loaded and drunk and stoned. And, <laughs> Is this and, with uh, Brian Robertson, right? And Brian Robertson wanted <laughs> to fight me in the middle of House of Guitars one day and... Uh, uh, but Levy and I got along great, and I remember going to do a, uh, a radio interview one day with Lemmy, and uh, the uh, uh, DJ wanted us to do anti-drug commercials, and I'm going, great, what's Lemmy going to say? And he didn't even flinch. He, he pulled the microphone up, and he went, Hi, my name's Lemmy from Motorhead, and I want to tell all you kids that I'm going to do drugs that don't do drugs, because all my friends have done drugs, either dead or they're going to die, so don't do drugs, kids. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and um, the first time I ever met Lemmy was actually in Rochester, New York. We were playing the Penny Arcade. And uh, it was that same day that I nearly got in a fight with Robinson down at uh, uh, 
uh, uh, the House of Guitars. I remember they were carrying the gear, and he was passed out on the, behind the club, and they were carrying the gear right over top of his body. And um, we had gone down there uh, to Sank. Uh, uh, the House of Guitars, by the way, is a great big music store, and they sell guitars and records. I don't know if it's still there. But uh, back then, it was a monster place, and everybody used to go there. And we went down to thank them for selling our first two indie albums, Breaking Loose and White Lace and Black Leather. And um, Motorhead was notoriously late for sound checks and in-stores and everything else. And that day was no exception. And uh, when they showed up, Robinson had a 40-pounder of a, a vodka, and he was pretty drunk. And I happened to make the mistake of saying, hey, uh, Rob, I'm having a bad day. And he grabbed me by the throat. And, you know, started freaking out on me. And I thought he was going to hit me. And all these kids that were waiting for Motorhead to show up at the in-store, just everybody just got kind of quiet. And, you know, kind of like, is this part of the act? And um, But later on that day, we were back at uh, the Penny Arcade. And I'm sitting there at the bar with uh, beside Lemmy and... Uh, all of a sudden he turned to me and he goes, do you believe in God? And I went, yeah. <laughs> then he started going this big tirade about his father being a preacher and had lent him some money. And then he told me about uh, being a uh, roadie for uh, Jimi Hendrix. And uh, they did uh, some windowpane acid and were stoned for three days. And how Hendrix had a, 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 a tackle box, like a fishing tackle box full of different drugs. And it was uh, something I'll never forget, that's for sure. And what was that, first week on the tour or something? Yeah, about that, yeah. But he was, he was a great guy. He's a very intelligent guy, uh, Lemmy. He's always reading. Pretty deaf, just like yours truly. Um, and uh, I, I became a Motorhead fan big time after that tour. I just, uh, I think one thing about Lemmy is he's a genuine person. I love genuine people. I hate people that... You know, they're one person on stage, and they walk off, and they get in their little, uh, you know, little car, and they change their clothes, and they're completely different people. Um, he's he. What you see is what you get when uh, you meet Lemmy. Mm -hmm. It's fun. It's interesting uh, listening to you say that you were thrown in this world of Motorhead because you guys were just basically a, a bar band That's from right. from Canada. Yeah, and you know, since people got to remember around this time. There wasn't the infrastructure that you know we have today for up-and-coming bands or the scenes like there's a punk rock scene an indie rock scene you guys were doing it in the only scene that was available to you these bars yes putting out two independent records before uh no rest for the wicked and you were an independent band a lot these days independent bands are a genre unto itself they, well, and given the distinction and, and credibility. But you guys were doing the exact same thing back when there was no infrastructure. We were, we were probably one of the first bands to ever put out their first album. And, and when we did it, everybody said, no, nah, it's not going to work. You ain't going to be able to do it. You're not going to be able to tour. And uh, we proved them wrong. We took money from my grandmother, from my manager, from his mother, uh, uh, and uh, I think the first album cost us 26000 bucks, and we recorded it at uh, Springfield Sound just outside London here. Had actually a studio owned by Brian Ferryman, who now manages Michelle Wright. And um, that album uh, became a hit in Texas with a, with a DJ called Joe Anthony, who was known as the godfather of rock and roll. He worked at Kiss K-Mac out of San Antonio. And... Um, he broke Moxie down there, Triumph, ACDC, uh, Judas Priest. He was he controlled that whole market in Texas. And um, 
then we came out with uh, the uh, White Lace Black Leather album. That became a hit, a uh, 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 major uh, number one import in England for us. And uh, we actually used to sell them between sets, and we sold about 15,000 copies of each album, believe it or not, off stage. And uh, that led to our uh, being signed to Capitol Records. And um, we were one of the first bands, like I said, to, to ever release their first, uh, uh, release an independent album. We were, uh, you know, the first bands to do that. People don't remember that time, how hard it is for, for it's, a, it's a dream back then to put out, a, even to record your own song, to, to have it out. There was mm-hmm. no um, scene for that, especially if you're in a band. Uh, what I remember um, was uh, like a cover, a cover band <clears throat> scene, like a heavy cover band scene. That's right. But original music on vinyl being sold out—that was you guys were almost an anomaly back then. Well, we started off uh, when we put original material into the set. Uh, we did one set, and we did it on an East Coast tour. I'll never forget. And um, it went over great. In fact, it was our best set of the night. Back then, you played three to five sets a night, usually three sets. And um, then we started going a little bit further. We did two sets, and it was still great. And then we went completely original, and, and the band just did a nosedive. We were having, we were having <laughs> problems getting gigs. This was just previous to being signed to a, a, a capital EMI. But um, getting back to the circuit that you're talking about, I think it was actually a, a healthier breeding ground for bands because you could play, play uh, uh, six, seven nights a week. You could tour right across the country. And um, learning all those cover songs uh, uh, helped our writing. And it, uh, uh, because I think when you're learning cover songs, you're really learning from the best people in the business. Uh, and that bleeds over into your own material. And... Being able to see the country, you know, going to, say, Brandon, Manitoba, and then going down uh, Young Street in Toronto, and then you're in Vancouver, and then you're in Edmonton, uh, makes you more well-rounded, not only as a performer, but as a person. gives you more of that world view of things. Um, I find bands nowadays, they never get out of their hometown because there's, there is no place to play during the week. So, you know, what do you do? You know, you can't go to Thunder Bay and sit there for four days twiddling your thumbs because you still have to pay for rooms, gasoline, your road crew, and, and things like that. So I, I feel it's a real impediment, the, uh, the fact there's no um, circuit out there anymore. And it's, it's really the classic way, going back to the Beatles, how they would just do covers mm-hmm. and covers and, like you said, multiple sets a night. Well, it was even more with them because they used to go, they'd play a set and then they'd go to a different club. Right, right, and I think I I I agree with you that that whole um, way of doing things and and how to become a, a strong songwriter as well as a performer is lost, and that's why I think you know when I see bands I'm a lot of the time unimpressed. Um, there's there's nothing <clears throat> that really hits me from left field as much as it used to. I think. Um, I want to go back to, because I'm really fascinated by the whole point of, for example, you were saying you were opening up for a lot of bands, Motorhead, yes. Triumph. Mm-hmm. You even mentioned Heart. We did three or four tours with Heart back then. How was that? I don't remember too much of that, believe it or not. <laughs> I don't know why. Uh, I, I never even met the band. Some of the guys really? met the band. but Nancy uh, Wilson? Yeah. No? I remember playing... 
it was a different kind of audience, right? I don't know if I felt uh, a little bit alienated by that or what, but I remember playing um, this one place, and it wasn't racquetball, but some Florida game they play with, I don't know. Badminton? No, it wasn't badminton. It was uh, something else. Uh, they, they have these clubs down there where they play this certain game. I think it's like a, uh, a thing where you throw a ball around, but it's like a scoop or something. I don't know. But um, Hart were great. Uh, sound wise uh, but like I said I didn't really get to meet them I remember uh, um, uh, uh, other bands uh, more vividly like I remember playing with Mitch Ryder which I thought was oh wow a great thing you know uh, actually uh, being in the alley taking a squirt right before the show and there's Mitch Ryder taking a leak right beside me <laughs> uh, I remember playing with Alvin Lee from 10 years after at uh, Painter's Mill in uh, Baltimore, also on the uh, bill was Crack the Sky. I remember that uh, uh, very clearly. I remember playing with uh, Meatloaf at the Rainbow Theater in uh, Denver. Um, you know, gigs with Y&T in Texas. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, okay, so this is this is you you guys as an opening band, and you were saying when you were on tour with Triumph for um, Power 7, mm -hmm. you guys were almost co-headlining in a way in terms of audience yeah. pop popularity when was the flip when did you where did you start headlining with walking on the razor's edge or, or did you even on that album um i'm trying to remember now exactly where it was i think maybe at the tail end of that tour we started to do headline shows in canada it wasn't until the next tour we actually headlined over in europe we did a headline tour through um uh, the country of Sweden, because we had a number one album with A Long Way to Heaven, which was the follow-up. That's right, yeah. Um, a lot of times with bands back then, maybe not so much today, but you know, the, the record company was would always release half the amount of units that you sold in the previous album. So because Walking the Razor's Edge was such a huge album, uh, you know, they based uh, uh, what they were initially releasing on the uh, final sales when, when they came out with that. So I think that helped push uh, uh, that album to be a big album. But probably the album that people knew us for in Sweden was uh, were the first two, New Russell Wicked and Walking the Razor's Edge. Um, and then we did some headline dates in the tour, but it, that whole period is kind of a blur when it, when it comes to that. Really? So, <clears throat> so was it at the tail end of Walking on the Razor's Edge that you guys started headlining and then you just... I know how it is with record companies. They just want you to get back into the studio, turn it yeah. around. So that's a whole blur because it was just going at a yeah. at such a pace. The, the headline tour I really remember in Canada was actually in Wild in the Streets because we had uh, April Wine's old uh, um, set, like the the ramps and all that stuff, and we added to it. And right. uh, we had the great big metal horns at the bottom, and so you could run up the ramps. We had the show all choreographed where you could. But uh, I I thought uh, uh, one funny thing that happened with that stage is we were in, uh, I think it was Regina or someplace. And um, you ever seen the Bugs Bunny show where uh, uh, Yosemite Sam's chasing uh, uh, Bugs Bunny on the boat, and they go up one level and in the door, and and, and then out the bottom door and stuff like that. Right. There, was a, <laughs> there was a guy jumped up on the stage and he ran up the uh, uh, one ramp with the horn, right? And Kenny, our road manager, was chasing. Well, he'd get up to one level and the guy would be on the other level. And Kenny run up to that level and the guy run down the steps <laughs> to the other level. Finally, Kenny tackled him and took him right off the back of the stage. Um, 
and it was heavier than hell to, to cart around. I remember uh, Fritz's uh, uh, drum stage was this huge aluminum thing. It was monster. And uh, we played Trinidad in 1987, and our last date was actually at London Gardens here. And we had to go in the middle of a snowstorm up to Baden and take this thing to our manager's mother's barn uh, to stick it in there. And the snow was about six feet deep, and it was snowing like hell. And here we are with this huge drum uh, uh, stage and it was on a kind of a cart right and it took about 10 of us trying to carry this damn thing through the snow to get it into the barn um so i remember more stuff like that about the yeah. uh the the staging and the headline tour uh than anything else um there's one thing that i got my memory jogged um uh, give me good loving video is now very very infamous Mm -hmm. because of one Tracy Lourdes appearing in the video. Yeah. And on YouTube, you can actually see the uncensored version that you guys did. You can see both. Yes. But you can actually see the uncensored version. Mm -hmm. And this is before she got, I guess, what do you call it, busted for being... Well, was she underage? She was She was underage. We didn't do the casting for that video. Um, nobody knew at the time. Nobody knew at the time. And uh, they haven't pulled that video. And, you know, she was 15. <laughs> And they pulled all her other stuff. The um, thing I remember about that video was shot at uh, Francis Ford Coppola's old uh, uh, st studio in Hollywood, Exantrope, is that was how you say it? And uh, Rob Williams and Richard Pryor and Rip Taylor were filming next door. They were doing Pryor's Place, and they came over, and I was a big Richard Pryor fan. I wow. love Richard Pryor. And uh, when I met him, it was funny because... He wasn't what I expected him to be. You know, he you know, wanted to go, come on, Richard, say something funny. You know, but he was like, do you think somebody can get me a Helix album and get it signed? And he's talking really quiet. And we run out. We didn't have an album on us, so we run out to a record store, and we brought him back one and signed it for him. And uh, and Ron Williams was there, and he did a little skit for my, my Super 8 movie camera. Really? I still have that. And Rip Taylor was the same thing. Rip Taylor was actually the funniest of the three guys, if you want to know the truth. And he's in the video. He's right? in the video at the very end. Is that end, because yeah. they were just next door? He just said, hey, Rip, why don't you come over? Yeah, and uh, they wanted us to go through all this paperwork and legal uh, stuff to get him in. And uh, we just thought it was too much. So we just put him in. We went, thought, well, if he sues, he sues, right? But yeah. That never, ever happened. He actually asked our, uh, our manager, Bill, to come down and visit him, invite him to his house. What are you going to do with all this footage, this Super 8 footage of Robin Williams and... Oh, and I got so much stuff in First film. gold I, record and Rush and all this stuff, man. I got stuff downstairs. I got um, even just the last uh, uh, 15 years, uh, uh, I have the little mini discs, mm -hmm. you know, that you put in a Sony camera. I have something like 160 of those. You know, I got the whole Trailer Park Boys tour uh, when we were out in Western Canada. And I just saw Bubbles. Yeah, you just, just saw, saw Mike. We played Halifax last week. Yeah, yeah. And Mike came out. He's a great guy. They're all great guys. They're so down to earth. Yeah. Uh, I feel honored that they consider me uh, their friend. He's um, He is a great dude and very approachable, very cool. Just a regular, yeah. really cool guy. And... Uh, well, our connection with those guys started back when they had the uh, uh, the one episode where they had Rush in it, uh, Closer to the Heart, I right. the name of the episode was. And Archie uh, Gamble, who was in the band playing drums for me at the time, he emailed them, and uh, Mike Clattenburg got a hold of me, and we became friends through email. 
And I said to Mike, I said, look at Mike, I said, if I come out there on my own dime and I pay for my own hotel room and everything else, would it be all right if I came down and watched you film uh, an episode? I said, because I've never watched, seen a TV show being filmed and I'd love to see that happen. He's so sure. So I flew out and they picked me at the airport and they, they took me and, and I couldn't believe how well I was treated by the guys. They treated me like I was the star, right? And I, meanwhile, I'm just in awe of those guys. And um, the funny thing was, when we went to leave, they gave me a limo ride back to the airport. And for some reason, I decided to stick my camera in my my luggage bag uh, before I went through security. And here they put a 14-inch uh, tinfoil penis in my luggage. And <laughs> they did. <laughs> Hoping to set off all the alarms. Meanwhile, there was a, a few uh, uh, smiles from the uh, girls' work at security at the airport when I pulled that out. Um, but uh, then, then I did a tour with. Uh, um, uh, we did a tour with the uh, Trailer Park Boys and Swollen Members through Western Canada. A couple years after that, and Wait, then I, Helix Swollen Members and Trailer Park Boys. That's correct. All through Western Canada, and I got tons of. I filmed almost every night, and I got some really funny stuff. Um, and uh, then I had like a three-second part in the second movie, Countdown to Liquor Day. Right, yeah. Uh, and Alex Lifeson was in that at the yeah. end. and That's a whole other story I don't think I could tell here. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> Was Mike Smith on the tour uh, of the Guns N' Roses tour in London when we first met, you and I first met? <clears throat> was Mike Smith on that tour? I don't think he was there that night. That and I'll tell you something. I I think that connection with, with uh, Guns N' Roses was because of Sebastian. That's what I figured. And I got, I, I feel I got Sebastian on that show because we did Sweden Rock, and I think, uh, uh, what was it? Uh, can't remember when the date was now, but I rode all the way back in the bus in the same seat with Sebastian from uh, Malmo back to Copenhagen. And um, Baz said to me at that time, he said, I want to be in that show. Get me in that show. And I went, well, I, I, you know, I said, I'll do my best. So I contacted Mike Clattenberg. I said, look, it's Sebastian Bach wants to be on in the show, right? And I never heard anything back. I don't, I don't think Mike Clattenberg knew who Sebastian was. And then I think somewhere along the line, it clicked in who he was and they got and then they saw the show and he was on right right um and then uh, uh you know because baz knew uh, axel i think he introduced mike to axel and that's how uh mike ended up going out with guns and roses because well, i know axel is like the number one fan of that show yeah that's and great since that i guess i don't know when the introduction was made maybe it was through baz but um axel and mike are really good friends yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's how we actually played with Mike's old band Sandbox yes. years ago uh, at Fort Erie, and Mike remembered it. And then we had a kind of a reunion on the tour, and yeah, Axel would bring him out for the encore or something for for <laughs> as as Bubbles, and then we we hung out a few few nights. Um, but the Halifax show, as far as I remember, uh, Bubbles told Axel that. Uh, none of the cast can make it. Um, you know, something was, I don't know, he made up some excuse. And then the whole cast, the three, uh, Ricky and and um, um, Julian, Julian yeah. uh, showed up and uh, 
what's the dude's the crazy old man drunken oh, uh, Jim Leahy or yeah Leahy uh, John's Dun Dunford Leahy uh, Julian Dunsworth. and and, uh, and Ricky showed up with Bubbles on stage and surprised Axel and it was yeah. the last show of the tour and it was crazy but what was even crazier was the we were backstage and. Ricky and Julian, I don't know if they were in they were in character or whatever. They were hanging out backstage in our dressing room and they were dressed as who they were. Julian had his, his glass. And I never met these guys before. I just knew Bubbles. I just knew Mike. But I, I never met Julian. He had the glass. And I'm like going, is this, the, is this guy like, is he the dude all the time? Is this how it is all the time? Um, they are kind of like that. Yep. It was crazy. Uh, I, I, it was an amazing night, but um, yeah, that kind of freaked me out too because I didn't really know. And Leahy, I guess he was getting into character, so he was talk like we were backstage. There was no audience. We were their audience, but we were part of the show, and they were yeah. all in character. And I couldn't fucking figure out what the fuck was going on. Well, you know, when I when I first met them, when uh, went to see them film, I think uh, I think the name of the episode I saw was I think you pissed yourself, Mr. Leahy, the first time Conky was ever in one of the episodes, <laughs> and uh, we we filmed all day long, like sixteen hours, and. Uh, then we went out to some place to get a bite to eat, and we we're sitting on a patio, and there's all sorts of people coming up asking for autographs, and they're being polite and they're signing and everything. But uh, the thing I found so amazing was, if you watch the first couple seasons, Ricky's always wearing that black and white checkered shirt, and it's got the big rip. Yeah. He was wearing that shirt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we were all like, good eating, right? Um, but even on tour when we were out west, you know, Whereas, and you know, you know this from being on tour, you always go to the headline and knock on the door. It's over if I come in. Yeah. Not there. It's like wide open door policy. Everybody just, there's all sorts of people walking in and out and, uh, you know, people smoking these great big gaggers and stuff. And uh, it was pretty bizarre. Um, yeah. But, you know, Mike can rub shoulders with somebody like Axl Rose, some of the biggest stars in the world. And then, you know, somebody will come up off the street and he'll have the same demeanor with that person. I think that's such a class act when people do that. Uh, I remember I, I flew back from Ottawa one, one time and um, uh, to London and uh, people were laughing on the plane. I, I go, what's so funny? And they went, is that guy over there? Looks like Maurice Richard. So anyway, I got off the plane, I'm walking. I see this guy walking beside me. I said, hey, uh, you're not Maurice Richard, are you? And he goes, yes, I am. And I went, holy shit, right? So... Um, I run out. I run out to my van, and I had a little pad and paper, uh, you know, a pen. And I see him get ushered out, and he's got a minder, and he gets in this van. And I'm standing there like a tool with this, with this, you know, little scribbler and uh, a pen. And the van comes whipping by me. It goes to the end of the row in the parking lot, and all of a sudden the brake lights come on. And he made that driver back up, all the way back up to where I was, and he got out and signed my autograph. And I thought. This guy's a class act, and and Mike Smith is is the same thing. All those guys are, um, and uh, I think that adds to your longevity as a performer too. When you're like that, in fact, you know we were talking about Lemmy before. He's comes from the cut from the same cloth, right? He sits there at the Rainbow, and uh, I've never ever heard him not talking to someone. And I know from being on tour, he was very accessible too. Yeah, he he is very accessible um, and very friendly. He was he's been very 
nice to our band over the years. Yeah. Um, all those two guys, especially that you mentioned, I've seen it. I've seen people come up to Mike, even in Halifax. The fight was on, the Pacquiao-Mayweather fight yeah. when we were in Halifax. So I announced it on stage. I said something like, Pacquiao over Mayweather or something like that. So Mike came backstage and he's like, Do you, you guys watching the fight? Like, we should go watch the fight. And people coming up to him, like you said, <clears throat> exactly very approachable and just mm -hmm. shot the shit with everybody and, and that was it. Um, and that is very impressive, um, especially for someone as huge as his character is in, now in pop culture. Um, and not be, just in Canada anymore. No. Like, same thing in the States, over in England. Yeah. A lot of places, Australia, I think they're big there down there now. Well, they're about to do a European tour, he was saying. Mm -hmm. And a European tour, I mean, this is, this is you know, different cultures, different... Uh, with music, you and I, we can tour Europe. Music is, can, you know... Universal language. Yeah, it, it it goes beyond uh, a language, but these are these are comedians and yeah. actors, and they're doing you know they're speaking. Doesn't in necessarily English. always translate well. No, and and he said that like the the rooms are sold out. They had to move them to bigger rooms. So Trailer Park Boys is a a show that I was a little late on. I must admit, and guys in in our in our band in our entourage our crew they kept telling me you would love this show, and I'm so slow with shows i i you know i was like i'm the same way right yeah i, I it takes me years to get into breaking bad i finally got in the last season but um they would so they said sit down we're gonna show you they tailor made one like watch this episode it was the alex lyson one and then there was another one where they they uh they turned one of the trailers into a nightclub and then it was a gay club or something <laughs> by mistake or something and so they tailor made these shows and they won me over so every night on whatever tour it was we'd finish the show and we'd watch a couple of episodes of trailer park boys and then we'd all go to hit hit our bunks or whatever so that was like a routine so when we finally met them in on the guns and roses tour i mean to me they were just like they were rocks they were bigger than than Axl Rose. It yeah. was watching like it, it, they were the headliners for, as far as yeah. I was concerned. So it was pretty cool. Yeah, there has been some great hangs. But when I met you, I met you in London at the arena here in London for mm -hmm. the Guns N' Roses tour. Yes. Was that, was you, I thought that was your connection in, obviously this is your hometown, but was it through Baz as well? Like just getting in? It was and, through Baz. Yeah. yeah, hanging. That's what I figured because when we were out in Calgary, um, Greg Godovitz, I think, got through backstage mm -hmm. because of Baz. You know, that's because uh, Baz and, and uh, Greg were responsible for the closing down the Gasworks party. Oh, right. And that's okay. where I first met Sebastian. And um, then we reconnected over in Sweden Rock, and uh, I put in a word for him for the show. Whether or not that that's what got him on or not, I don't know. But um, and then uh, I just kept in touch with him through email. Um, he's another uh, great guy. Mm -hmm. um, meeting him, knowing that we were doing the Guns tour and Baz was going to be on the tour, um, and we're from the same neighborhood in Willowdale. Right. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> took me about a week and a half to ask him about it. But the first minute I met him, he was like, he yelled out my name, and he was really welcoming and gracious, and and that really put me at ease. 
you know, and, and it was, I've always wanted to meet him and the way I met him was the best way possible. And I, I, I just know that Baz has only respect for, you know, other guys and other Canadian bands. Well, and when, when we were over in Sweden Rock, I'll never forget this, we were backstage after Baz's show and Baz is up in this crate, just like an orange crate or, you know, pop case or something, right? And there was like, he was being mobbed. There was like two, three hundred people and he was standing up and I'm kind of on the peripheral edge of this this crowd. And he happened to see me over there and, he, and all of a sudden he stops what he was doing, talking to the crowd and he goes, hey everybody, over there that guy, he sings for Helix, one of the greatest bands in the world. He's going like this and I felt kind of like <laughs> embarrassed, you know what I mean? Because, um, you know what I mean? Like coming from Baz, that was a real compliment. And, uh, yeah. uh, um, but now, last week we played London, your hometown, yep. London, Ontario. <clears throat> and before the show, great show. Thank you. Uh, it was very, there was pressure knowing you were in the crowd. Pressure. Uh, <laughs> really? And, yeah, yeah. Um, freaked me out a bit. But uh, I, I, I went onward. Finish the show. I enjoyed it so much. I almost stayed right to the end, and and I was with a guy that had to get up at five thirty in the morning. Yeah, so. you're saying, yeah, no problem. I understand. But <clears throat> before the show, you came backstage, and we were talking, and uh, I said, "Well, Brian, I gotta warm up. You know, I just gotta yeah. do my little, my own ritual thing of mm -hmm. warming yeah. my voice up." And then you dropped this whole bell canto bomb on me yeah, yeah. so I, I had no idea that you are a teacher of a what is it a singing technique a style if bel canto means uh, uh or bel voce uh means beautiful voice in italian and uh bel canto was um came about in the 1600s and it's uh, a vocal technique that everybody used to use back then um, very little was written down about it over the years and the person that taught me Edward Johnson was actually one of the few people that actually went and researched it and found out if it was even uh, scientifically physically possible and it was and uh, he developed a technique uh, uh, to teach uh, bel canto he taught Ian Thomas uh, Beverly D'Angelo um, Gilmore of Triumph Andy Kern of Coney Hatch and just literally thousands of people and then he taught uh, a few select people to be teachers, and I was the only one he really put his blessing on, uh, mainly because I was the only one that went back week after week, year after year, for 15 years. I'd uh, travel all the way up to Fergus, Ontario. It took me two and a half hours to drive up there. And then uh, I'd take my lesson two and a half hours back, so basically my day was a write-off once I did that. But uh, I'd go up with a list of questions to uh, ask them about my students, and uh, now I teach, and I've been teaching now since 1988, I think. Holy smokes. What made you go two and a half hours there and back um, every week? What was it that was driving you to do it? Obviously, for <clears throat> professional reasons, but wasn't there a point where you're like, okay, I got this? Well, initially, I went to take vocal lessons when, you know, uh, to save my voice in, 19, <clears throat> excuse me, in 1976 I had nodes in my vocal cords and I was told I would never ever sing again and my manager at that time William Sipe sent me to Ed and um, Ed took me aside I'll never forget this put his arm around my shoulder and said look a kid just do what I tell you to do and your nodes will go away and uh, as long as you're patient 
And sure enough, in one year, I didn't take any time off from the road. I didn't get them operated on or anything like that. My nodes went away. And uh, it took me a long time, though, for my voice to repair itself fully. But now I'm, I'm 60 years old, and I think I'm singing better than when I was 18 years old. Uh, around 1988, after my first divorce, um, I was basically uh, penniless on the streets. I had gold and platinum albums on the wall, but nothing in my pocket. And uh, I worked uh, part-time jobs. I worked through manpower and these terrible, shitty jobs that no one else would take for a couple of years. And I thought, uh, I can't do this. All I need to do is get sick for two weeks and I'm sunk. And I couldn't go back to school. I felt I was too old and uh, nobody would hire me for a decent paying job. So I thought, well, the only thing I know how to do half-assed well as to sing so I phoned up Ed and I said Ed uh, what would you think of me becoming a teacher and he said oh yeah I saw teach be a teacher you come here and I'll teach you so that's how it began and uh, I really treasured those moments with Ed we'd go down there and uh, he not only would advise me and the technique and and what to look for because remember when you teach voice it's an invisible instrument it's not like learning how to teach guitar or keyboards or drums where you can watch your hands or your feet. Your voice is invisible. And, and uh, not only that, but your body is your instrument. When, when you're singing, unlike a guitar, if you break a string, you go get a new string. Uh, once you screw up your voice, that's pretty well it. So um, he taught me to be a teacher, and I, I started off with a couple students, and uh, now I'm up to, I don't know, what have I got there, about 30 students or something. That's, and, a, list of all, that's and, a list of all your students. Yeah, and it goes up and down during the week, and uh, or up, you know, from week to week, rather. Who are your students? Who are these people? Uh, well, I've taught uh, Morgan and Mercedes Lander from Kitty, uh, Tim Hicks, who's had quite a few uh, country hits. Um, so, so singers, like real, like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> professional singers. Professional, uh, professional. Weekend singers, sometimes just, you know, people that want to do it for... Uh, and laugh. They've always wanted to try it, but you know, uh, it's mostly professional singers. This is for because it takes a long time to learn how to do it. Do it. Uh, the only way you learn how to do it is through repetition, going over and over and over and over and over uh, the technique. And um, you, there's basically four steps: how to lift your throat, how to aim your voice, how to inhale your voice, uh, and then the hold of the breath. And uh, um, you know, uh, you learn it, learn it all to uh, uh, exercises, which are essentially vowels with consonants tacked to either ends, which are like words, only uh, unlike words, they have no emotional content in the exercises. So you learn how to lift your throat and aim your voice and the other things uh, with the exercises. And then once you learn how to master that, then the next logical step is to apply it to uh, words and syllables of uh, songs. And this is for preservation of voice. For preservation of voice and also to increase your, uh, um, you know, uh, I sh shouldn't say increase your range because you're born with your range, but most people don't know how to use their full range. So how to control your voice, how to breathe correctly, uh, and basically make your voice last. Your voice shouldn't peak until you're 65 years old. Most people in rock, though, they're burning out by the time mm -hmm. they get 55. Yeah. And ironically, this is where you make the most money, not at the other end, this end. <laughs> now, you, um, you, you said you had notes, <clears throat> and I think I remember you telling me backstage last week, um, you should never go under the knife 
for no, notes. because uh, usually when you get them operated on it, your vocal cords lose their flexibility, and it's at some point as bad as having the note itself. A note is really just a callus on your vocal cord. It's your body's way of protecting your vocal cord from the bad things you're doing to to your vocal cords. In other words, singing incorrectly. And I can imagine, um, you know, like you were, you said you were 18, an 18 version of <clears throat> Brian Vollmer didn't warm up, just was ready for the stage and never really thought about and sung from your throat. And I actually just, warmed up. It was just, I was such a hard singer. And like most rock singers, I was a, a belter or try to throw my voice, push my voice. And uh, whenever you push your voice, uh, uh, when you see singers and they're singing, they have all that muscular tension down around their, their Adam's apple or thyroid cartilage. All that tension is transferred to the vocal cords. There's almost no way around it when you sing like that. And uh, <clears throat> and you don't do that. I try not to anymore. Right. You're not going to do it 100% perfect uh, when you're singing rock because rock is a uh, distorted sound, as is pop, country. Uh, in classical music, they always sing pure vowel sounds, no distortion. Uh, in fact, any distortion in classical music is considered a big no-no. Right. Um, uh, but you can learn how to sing that you're not losing your voice all the time. Because you you don't you don't you don't go through the bel canto technique to clean your voice out. Obviously, anyone who hears you. You are you are a very rock and roll singer. That's right. That distortion. So, the bel canto <clears throat> technique didn't uh, wipe away the rock and roll from your voice. No, it didn't change the sound of my voice. It just allowed me to do it night after night. Also, increase my range, um, control, better tone. Right. And now, <clears throat> Helix is how many albums deep? This is the 41st year for the band, and uh, I don't know how many albums we got. Let's let's go through them. Break and Loose, White Lace and Black Leather, No Rest for the Wicked, Walking to Razor's Edge, Long Way to Heaven, Wild in the Streets, Back for Another Taste, uh, It's a Business Doing Pleasure, and of course there's all the compilation albums in there, um, Rockin' in My Outer Space, The Power of Rock and Roll, uh, Vagabond Bones, uh, Heavy Mental Christmas, um, Pastor to the Blues and the um, Smash Hits Unplugged. Is that 14 albums, I think? And then there's B Sides, which is unreleased tracks, and right. 60 Minutes with Deep Cuts. Yeah, there you go, eh? <laughs> um, well, I, it, this, is, this is great. This is something I've wanted to do uh, for a long time. Schedules, however, don't permit, as yeah. you know, being on the road. Yes. The last thing you want to do sometimes when you're off the road is move. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there's only a few things that would get me to move and a, a chance to sit down well, with thank you. Thank you very much for coming down. I, it's, it's a wonderful... It's an honor to have be interviewed by you, to tell you the truth. Oh, the honor is mine, Brian, and thank you for... Having me here at Planet, Planet Helix. Now I got to take you for a tour. Okay, let's do it. I'm, <laughs> okay. I'm interested. I could see all the platinum records, just in case anybody <laughs> wants to know. Uh, there's a lot of platinum records here, and I want to know what else is there. And lot, lots of oh, really I, cool, I, neat stuff. I'll show you my wall of shame and stuff. You're gonna have to sign my wall of shame downstairs. You got to sign my album too. Okay, I will. Okay, thanks, Brian. And you're welcome. Get it!